Uh, Jacob DeShazier, anybody heard of him? Jacob DeShazier, anybody? All right, he was a pilot. Uh, he was a pilot in Japan during World War II. And bring any bells? No World War II bus? All right, I'll keep going. So Jacob DeShazier, he uh, flew over Japan after uh, Japan had come and bombed Pearl Harbor. And uh, they got his plane and he landed in mainland China or mainland Japan. And he was in prison, tortured. Most of his time was spent in solitary confinement uh, for three whole years. And we went into the military. Uh, Mr. DeShazier was not a Christian. He was not a believer. Uh, but during the end of his three years in prison in Japan, somehow he got his hands on a Bible. He read it cover to cover, over and over again. And eventually he came to faith. And not long after he'd come to faith, uh, he was released from jail, went back to the United States, trained to be a missionary, and he felt called to go back to Japan. He wanted to love his former enemies. He wanted to share the message of God's forgiveness. And so he wrote a pamphlet. It was called, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. This pamphlet was really just a, a good old-fashioned gospel track with his testimony in it. And a very unlikely person got a hold of one of these tracks in Japan. He, too, was a uh, fighter pilot. His name was Mitsuo Fukita, Japanese brother. And as he read through the pamphlet, his heart was warmed, and what grabbed him, what gripped him, uh, was a verse in the pamphlet that reads, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, this Japanese fighter pilot saw Jesus hanging on a cross, and it gripped him forever, it changed him. And after he came to faith, he looked up Jacob de Chazier, and they got to know one another. These two who were enemies got to know one another, began to preach together. In fact, they planted a town, planted a church in the town where Jacob de Chazier was originally shot down and arrested. I know that sounds like a fantastical story, and it kind of is. But from a certain point of view, one could say that forgiveness is always fantastical. I mean, who wants to absorb the pain in themselves that's been caused by other people? Well, it's my belief that everyone wants this kind of forgiveness. When we blow it, we want people to forgive us. But no one wants to forgive. I read an article by Aja Romano in the Vox this week. And she expounds on this whole theme of forgiveness in the Internet age. And here's what she says. She says, so much of the genuine fear of cancel culture involves the idea that once you're canceled... Nothing you can do, however well-intentioned, will be enough to satisfy the people bang for your blood. And it's easy to see why that fear exists. Social media rewards pithy, angry takes rather than nuanced, balanced discussions. And then social media boosts those takes so they attract more angry, non-nuanced takes. And see, it can feel good to be a part of that collective anger, especially when you feel righteous. It's often very difficult, extremely difficult, to let that anger go, to forgive, adjust, and move on. End quote. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Wouldn't you agree that it's hard to let anger go, to forgive, to adjust, and just move on? I mean, even if you're a ghost on social media, you just scroll, but you never post or like or comment. Maybe if, if you just... You would never 
cause a dust up in the comment section on social media. Well, just because you're a ghost and just because you're not in the comment section does not mean that your life is totally characterized by relational harmony. All of us, regardless of our activity on the internet, have been deeply hurt by others. Maybe it was the neglect of a parent. Maybe it was the unfulfilled promise of an employer. Maybe it was the deception of a friend. Maybe it was the abandonment of a spouse. I don't know how you've been hurt. I don't know how you're being called to forgive. But one of the ways that you know that you have a need to extend forgiveness is to check your anger. James Baldwin puts it well, and he says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense that once the hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with pain. Doesn't that sound like you? Sounds like me. Sure would be nice to release some of my anger and extend forgiveness. But the truth is, I just don't want to. I think our text can help. Our text today is from Luke 23. We've been going through this week of Jesus. Uh, now we are on Friday evening. Now, the scene that we're looking at today, uh, he is hanging on a cross. Let's start in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of the Lord. Do you see the two, the two criminals? Let's spend some time comparing and contrasting them. Let's look at the first one. What did it say that he did? Do you see it? Verse 39. That first criminal railed at Jesus. And his critique of Jesus, of Jesus makes a lot of logical sense, doesn't it? He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so the criminal's logic goes like this. Jesus, you are all-powerful. Jesus, you could bring relief to yourself. And Jesus, while you're at it, why don't you dispatch an angel or two for me? Would you just throw me a bone here? I'm tired of this pain. But he's not the only one fussing in our text. You see verse 35? Verse 35 says the religious leaders are fussing in the text. Then you see the Roman soldiers us at Jesus in the text. And they're all saying virtually the same thing. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So here you have the criminal rails, the leaders scoff, the soldiers mock. Take those three groups. 
It pretty much covers humanity, doesn't it? I mean, you've got Romans and Jews. So regardless of your ethnicity, you're going to miss Jesus. You've got a criminal, a bad person. He's got a criminal record. If he were to live, you might not want to hire him. His background check might not check all your boxes. But you also have got good people who miss Jesus here, not just the criminal. That's what the religious leaders are all about. So regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your morality, you're going to miss Jesus. Look at your socioeconomic status. You've got professionals, these people who are certified religious leaders. And you've got the soldiers who are blue-collar folks, and they both miss Jesus too. So here's what Luke is trying to do. He's trying to throw everybody under the bus, all of us. And he's trying to show us that we all make the same mistake, and it's this. We think that Jesus is weak and suffers, therefore he can't save anyone. We just miss the fact that it's because Jesus won't save himself that he can save others. See, the king dying for his subjects, it's subversive, it's illogical, and dare I say, even scandalous. And here's what makes it scandalous. It's that Jesus dies not for godly, friendly, vibrant people. Jesus dies for people who are ungodly hostiles and who are spiritually dead. Scandalous. And look at what each criminal asked to be saved from. They both asked to be saved. Did you catch that? The first one asked to be let down from the cross. He wants relief from his physical pain. That's his number one felt need. And it's going unmet. So what does he do? When your felt needs don't get met by Jesus, what do you have the tendency to do? You probably have the same tendency as this man here. He gets angry, and he starts telling Jesus what it's going to take to win his allegiance back. See, the criminal is not interested in having a relationship with Jesus. He just wants Jesus to make his life easier. True for any of you. Look at the second criminal. He views Jesus very differently. Verse 41, it says, We indeed are sentenced justly, for we are receiving the reward of our deeds. But this man right here, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. So the second criminal, he's acknowledging his culpability. He's repenting fully. He's not doing the kind of repenting that I'm used to doing. The kind that's conditional, that says, I'm sorry, but in fairness to me, I can understand your pain. However... He doesn't give a conditional apology. He doesn't give a half apology. The one that says, I'm sorry you feel that way. Ever gotten that one? More importantly, ever given that one? See, these are just pseudo-apologies. They're really just shifting the blame from you to the party you're apologizing to. But that's not the second criminal. He knows that he's hanging on the cross because of his own doing. And then you have the first criminal, and he demands salvation. Isn't it crazy how different they look here? They're both equally near to Jesus. They both heard and saw all that happened during those six hours that they hung on their respective crosses. They both were dying. They're both suffering acute pain. Both of them are violent villains. But for all their similarities, they're vastly different. 
One dies in his sins because he is hardened and arrogant. The other repents, believes in Christ Jesus, and he's saved. The first wants to save his skin. The second wants to save his soul. Which criminal are you? Are you the first one? If you are, you can start evaluating your anger. Maybe you think you're frustrated with your circumstances, or you're frustrated with certain individuals, or you're frustrated with the culture broadly. But I would implore you to consider maybe you're like the first criminal. Maybe you just want a superficial, temporary relief in your life. You just, think if, you just think, if Jesus could just make my kids a tad more mature, if Jesus could make my boss a tad more empathetic, if Jesus could make my spouse a tad more selfless, if my parents would just be a tad more helpful, a.k.a. give me a little more money, if my job would just pay me a little bit more, if I could just spend another $20,000 on my house, So you're discontent, you're angry, and you know God could do something about it and make your life easier. And so what is going on deep down in you? You're angry at him. So what should you do if you find yourself angry at God? Let me start by saying that God can handle you being mad at him. There are lots of psalms that start with an angry psalmist. You can start with Psalm 55 or 140. And if you, like the psalmist, will work through your anger in prayer, you're not going to stay mad. At least that's what happens in the psalms. In fact, as they pray, as they start angry, you start seeing them notice the darkness in their own hearts. You start seeing how they want to be the one who brings vengeance, but they realize that vengeance is the Lord's. You'll see in these psalms that they repent and they receive forgiveness. So if you're stuck in anger today, let me just encourage you to let your anger drive you to prayer. Where you can ask God to put things in perspective for you. But think about the second criminal. What led him to repent? Well, I think it started in verse 34. Verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. I think it melted him. I think it was instant. Because when Jesus was inserted into this scene, the second criminal was not a fan of Jesus. In fact, we learned that both criminals, not just the first one, but the second one too, reviled Jesus. We learned that in Matthew 27, 44. But he has this flash conversion. And we see the fruit of his conversion when he takes responsibility for his wrongdoing and he looks at Jesus with faith. I think the criminal really was thinking, are you serious? This guy's getting scoffed at, mocked, and reviled. Yet he's extending forgiveness to them? That is astonishing. And when Jesus says forgive them, he's not sure who he's talking to. Who's the them here? Is it the crowd? Is it the religious leaders? Is it the soldiers or is it the criminals? Well, the second criminal doesn't know, but he'll take that indistinct them and he'll crawl up into that pronoun and he'll receive forgiveness. 
You've probably heard the mantra, hurt people, hurt people. Anybody? And I think it's true. We react in unhealthy ways based on the ways in which we've been sinned against in the past. I think that's true. But I think another mantra is true. Forgiven people forgive people. Graced people grace people. That's what the journalist from Vox wrote about. Let me read another part of her article. She says this, Grace, the act of allowing people room to be human and make mistakes while still loving them and valuing them might be the holiest, most precious concept of all in this conversation about right and wrong, penance and reform. But to extend grace is a pretty big ask in a world that's becoming increasingly divisive and hateful. And that's what makes the concept of grace so powerful. It forces us to contend not only with other people's human frailty, but with our own. To remember how good it feels when someone out of the blue treats us with respect, empathy, and kindness in the middle of an angry conversation where we expect nothing but hostility. To be shown the kindness of strangers when we expect cruelty and then bestow that gift in turn, that's the remarkable quality of grace. But there's little room for it when we're barely able to handle the concept of forgiveness and equally unable to stop being angry with the offender after all is said and done. Heavy. I mean, this woman's not even a Christian. And I think she's on to something. I think she's right to say that grace is the answer. I think it's also right that towards the end of that article, she becomes fairly pessimistic about the possibility of this. And I think you can be pessimistic about it if you don't know what grace is. I mean, grace in this article seems like this abstract concept. It seems like it's this thing that's deposited into the corner of your soul that you can somehow dig into and dish it out when needed. But grace isn't an abstract concept. Grace is a person. Did you catch what Jesus said to the second criminal? He said, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Now the operative word here, you might think is paradise. Pretty unusual to be said in just common conversation between you and I. It's also an uncommon word in the scriptures. But the operative word is not paradise. And that's paradise is just using a metaphor for heaven. The operative phrase is with me. See, the best part of heaven is that Jesus is there. The best part of the Christian life now is that Jesus is here with you now, abiding with you. Now, you're going to get all these other gifts by when you become a Christian. You'll get freedom. You'll get power over evil. You'll get the ability to love others. You'll get purpose in life because you've been given a great commission. But Jesus is the gift. See, remember what Jesus said when he sent the 72 out to do ministry? When the 72 return home, they cast out demons, and they're pretty impressed with themselves. And Jesus said, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, the important part wasn't the ministry you were able to do. The important part is that you're with me. Or what about Romans 8.32, when Paul's waxing on about the generosity of God, and he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Do you hear what he's saying? That he's not going to give you any gift divorced from the person of his beloved son. And this is what Christianity is all about. 
Christianity is not about helping you be less anxious. Christianity is not about helping you be less insecure. Christianity is about having a position before God as forgiven because you've been given the gift of Jesus. So are you ready to extend this kind of forgiveness, brother and sister? I hope so. Because the truth is we're all billionaires in grace. The dump truck of grace has been backed up into our lives and we have a, lim- a limitless amount of it. So when you get snubbed, don't you think you have the resources to forgive a small debt? Well, let me warn you, it's not guaranteed to work. Your apology might soften your enemy, but you still might get your face bashed in because you're going to make yourself vulnerable. But just look at Jesus. He got his face bashed in, but he extended grace to one of his enemies, all because he was secure in the love of the Father. Are you secure in the love of your Father? If you are, you can extend forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words. Love your enemies and do good to those who revile you. Lord, that is just, that, that is hard to believe you call us to that. But Lord, I pray that you would help us see that we have been forgiven. Therefore, we can forgive. In Jesus' name, amen.